0: are listening to the Slash and cast podcast network
1: enjoy the show <laughs> all right folks welcome to the monsters madness and magic podcast justin here with a quick word before we dive in this episode features myself Daniel and Angelique, and we chat with legendary film composer Charles Bernstein about Nightmare on Elm Street, of course, the early days of composition, underground jazz clubs in France, navigating the industry as a composer, and much more. This is a really, really fun one for me because I kinda sorta got to spectate a bit near the middle once. Charles makes the discovery that Daniel himself is a composer, and then those two kinda take off to the races in which I'm sure you'll enjoy that little dynamic between those two. And last time, before I'm going to mention this, hopefully this was one of the last episodes recorded before we made the discovery of the audio issues. So I've doctored it up as much as I can. I don't think the audio is too bad. And going forward, things will sound a lot better. So without further ado, here you go.
0: and goobles, this is your comrade the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the Sanctuary of the Strange.
2: Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one
0: overflowing with monsters, madness, and
2: magic. <laughs>
1: Charles, just take us back in time. You know, when you're a youngster, what were you into? Were you, obviously you're into music, were you reading comics? What's the, what's the scoop there? Yeah,
2: you know, I, I was kind of a typical Midwestern kid, sports, comic books, Mad Magazine, <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever was happening. I wasn't, not, nothing, I, well nothing unusual about me except i'm a little strange but that aside i mean my lifestyle wasn't particularly uh you know different from from most of the kids that i knew
1: what sort of movies and stuff were you into growing up were you a horror fan or anything like that
2: you know honestly there wasn't horror the way there is now you know what i mean Mm -hmm. everything was a little more mainstream Uh, I did see the house of wax. I remember when it first came out, that was, you know, I guess you'd call it, that's a horror movie, but you know, the thing there, there were certain movies I saw, but I, but I was an equal opportunity movie guy. I loved movies that I can say, I just, there's something about movies even when I was, you know, let's see, I must've been nine and 10. I was able to get on the bus go downtown Minneapolis and, and for really cheap, I could go into a movie, you know, the children's thing was like a dime or something. It was really cheap. And I, you know, I just loved losing myself in in the movies. So that I can say for sure.
1: Where did the music love come along? What were you listening to? Yeah,
2: that's, uh, you know, that's kind of a little different. I got a mom and a dad, both of them played the piano. My dad was an unusual guy. He, back in his youth and in his young manhood, he was actually what we would today, and we're talking the Midwest here, he was what today we call a record producer. Records didn't exist the same way they do now, but my dad was pretty old when he had me. When I had my daughter, when she was born, she was 100 years after the date, my dad was born exactly wow. to the month, you know, huh. so, so he's an old, we're talking about an old guy, my dad, and he died when I was nine, but he was like, he would go down, he'd go into the South. We're talking Minnesota now. So I, I'm not exactly sure where that was according, you know, could have been South Carolina. It could have been anywhere, but he, he had some kind of a device. I'm told it was the size of a telephone booth that you could, that would record. And he would record what in those days I think was known to him as hillbilly music, which, God, (laughs) if I could only hear this stuff now, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah. That's a sad story, but none of this stuff exists. But And he would go into, you know, like black urban situations and record like the beginnings of jazz, you know, really cool stuff. And, And then he had some connection to a record label in New York. I think it was called Brunswick. All this stuff happened before I was born. So I never really knew about any of this. But what I did know, and here's the sad part, down in the basement, there were all these, these uh, aluminum records, you know, like sort of 78 RPM. Mm-hmm. And you, you could play them with these old old-fashioned record players. And I used to go out in the winter and throw them into the snow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, <no>.
2: oh. <laughs> really sad uh you know here's this little dumbass kid you know (laughs) he's just throwing it and then i don't know what would happen the snow would melt and maybe they get you know picked up by the trash collection i don't know but in minneapolis there were lakes all over the place and you know i'd always be throwing them off into the lakes and and like frisbees but before frisbees were invented you know so anyway that was my dad So he was kind of a musical guy. But when I was born, he was, you know, selling furniture and stuff. So he'd gone out of that whole area. But that's kind of in his, uh, you know, his genes. My mom was a really good pianist. And when I was little, I would, you know, be under the piano. I could, I'd play with her feet and I could hear, you know, all this wonderful music just over my head. You know, the piano for a little kid is like a big big house. Yeah. Anyway, I guess, you know, that would be a, a big part of my, but again, I, you know, I didn't know my dad was, you know, into music in any meaningful way. I knew he could sit down at the piano and fiddle around a little bit. But, and my mom was really good. So it, maybe that would account for, for me growing up, hearing musical sounds, seeing movies. And I'll tell you one more little anecdote about my mom. And this is really something, I, again, that I discovered as an adult. Here's a woman who, you know, she, she was born in the early part of the 1900s. And when she was 17, it was actually 1928. And talkies had just come in. But the year before that, when she was 17, she, when she was uh, 16 and 17, she was studying theater organ with a guy named Larry Morton, Lawrence Morton who later came out to Hollywood and he and his brother were very involved in film music. So here's my mom as a 17 year old girl learning how to accompany movies that are silent. And you know, that's like before film composers.
3: That's awesome. That's so cool.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. And I found this out. As an adult, you know, I'd be talking to my mom. She passed away at the age of 101 about 10 years ago. She was playing piano right up to the end. I asked John Williams once if he would find the sheet music to Sabrina, which my mom loved, the little theme that John wrote. And he was so sweet. He wrote, signed it to my mom and said, uh, you know, wished her a happy birthday, which was the occasion I gave it to her and so forth. But, you know, she always was, I, I guess... We could call her the first film, you know, among the first film composers, even yeah. though it wasn't original music.
3: Dang. What got <laughs> you into to scoring for film? What got you into that?
2: You know, Daniel, it's, it's kind of a good question in that I'm not exactly sure. I mean, there were things that, you know, opportunities I had along the way, but it's a weird profession and it was much weirder when I started. It's gotten a little more mainstream. But when I first went into this thing, it was really odd. I mean, you know, nobody even knew what it was as a profession. And I kind of slipped into it. I just found that it fit like a glove. You know, I just understood how to do it. And I get that may have something to do with, you know, what I was exposed to as a kid, that kind of thing. I guess the first time I got paid, you know, where I said, oh, you know, gee, maybe I can do this thing for a living. I was exactly 21. And a guy that I knew, he married a girl that, was, that I knew, and I, I actually studied music with her brother. And she said, you know, my husband's looking for some music for this little black and white documentary about blind kids at a place called the Washington State School for the Blind. And he needed like a little music. And, uh, you know, the guy paid me to do it. And I thought, wow, you know, this is fun. And I, I know how I, I can do this. And so uh, that was when I was 21. But I, I didn't quite get that there could be a career. It was the the Decade that followed that were other documentaries. Then I started to think, well, who else might pay me to do this? And I thought, well, the schools always have these boring movies about uh, the Industrial Revolution or the Civil War or something. You know, these these movies about some piece of American history, and uh, they're usually made by encyclopedia companies like Britannica and stuff. So I would contact these companies and say, you know, instead of you guys paying for the music, they go to a music library. Yeah. <laughs> I said, I can write you original music and it won't cost you any more, but it'll be better, which it wasn't, but I told him that. (laughs) I started doing a bunch of educational movies and documentaries and stuff like that. And that's when I really sort of Started to build up some confidence and kind of go into the the bigger. Unlike other composers, excuse me, I'm going to clear my throat. Okay, I haven't been talking all day, so it's kind of a novel experience <laughs> <for me. laughs> Okay, I, I keep my own company. I'm in, in a room, uh, this little room, which is a studio. I wrote Elm Street in here like a wow. hundred years ago, uh, <laughs> but it looked different then. But so I'm usually alone doing what I do. It's a kind of a isolated. Um, Again, another tangent. It's an isolated profession or it's a group profession. It's one or the other. I'm more of an isolated guy. But there are composers who kind of work in little teams for other composers. And that's a whole other subject. But I'm one of the guys that keeps my own company. I do my own engineering, my own sound designing, my own, you know, pretty much everything these days, unless I need an orchestra or something.
3: That's the dream. That's what I've been wanting to do for Jesus Christ my whole life. What do you use whenever you you score? You do. I mean, is it yeah. just you? Of course, you've got like a piano and stuff. But when you say you need an orchestra, so you use yeah. a live orchestra. You don't use any kind of like synthesizer pads or any VSTs or anything.
2: Okay, Daniel. Okay, so you're like a composer. I mean, you're you're a film composer guy. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't
3: this. go that far, but yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. like a composer would be a good summation. <laughs> yeah,
2: no, no, no. That that's good. I I would encourage you to say you are one because I was saying it before i was (laughs) you know it kind of leads the way okay i can tell you the world i live in now musically Mm -hmm. technologically is not the one that when i was your age i came into the one i came into at your age obviously there was no videotape there was no digital anything There was no home studio. I mean, none of the stuff, we computers of any kind, none of that stuff existed. So when I came in, you had to have an orchestra. Mm -hmm. Only way you could do film music. When I did that little doc for the uh, Washington State School for the Blind thing, I had a trio, piano, clarinet, and cello. And I went into a little recording studio on Seward. In, in other words, everything had to be done with instruments, even though it was just yeah. three players, you know. So that's the the world I came into the year in, you know, like as a young man starting out. Now, I, that's like really unusual. Now, yeah. uh, you know, if I need a trio, I can pretty much do it the way you do it mm-hmm. uh, virtually. Or telephonically, you know, say, well, you know, this clarinet part I can't really do as a virtual instrument, but there's a guy in New Mexico and I'll send him a PDF of the music and I'll send him a, a mp3 of the uh, track and uh, ask him, can you give me one with a lot of vibrato and a, another one that's a little more straight, you know, in other words, the same way you would do it. Yeah. Uh, so these are two different worlds both of which kind of coexist now, but certainly the electronic one is far more prevalent.
3: It's more prevalent, certainly, but I mean, which do you prefer? Because you talk about being isolated. I know the story, that's just me huddled off in my little closet and just doing my thing alone. But I mean, I want the symphony. I want the orchestra. Yeah. So I mean, which do you prefer, the live symphony to record for film or do you prefer to just sit at home? You know,
2: Daniel, I'll be honest with you. For the same reasons you prefer it, I prefer the live orchestra. It's social, it's exciting, yeah. it's dynamic, you know, it's wonderful. However, I have to say that as I matured into the electronic, you're starting in the electronic world and probably branching out to the acoustic world. I started in the acoustic world and I've kind of moved into the electronic world. As I've moved into the electronic world, wow, the control, I, I you know. Oh, I, yeah, I, dude. The little tweaks, the things that, for me, make the music one way or another, when I'd go into a recording session, the clock's always ticking, you've got, you know, you've got to be out of there in three hours, or take a break in 50 minutes, and, you know, and there's a lot of stuff that I've recorded that I would have wanted to tweak, and I can't after the fact.
3: That's what I love about being a solo recordist, because whenever I did, good God, probably 20 years ago, we did my demo with a little crappy thrash metal band, and, you know, we got paid for a four-hour studio session, whatever, and that's how I started learning the art of recording is on an analog board, but we fast-forward 20 years. and I mean, I'm like, I prefer to, I could do it on my computer. I can have a hundred-piece symphony orchestra. I could do the choirs. I can enunciate and everything. Damn it, man, I want a live symphony so I can play live. I want my guitar, I yeah. want the fireworks, and the blood, and the yeah, spikes, yeah. and the symphony yeah. behind me. So, I mean,
2: yeah, nothing I, more exciting. Nothing like it. Nothing. But like-
3: I, I do appreciate the control. You mentioned that, though, so yeah. I can just go back the subtle nuance, yeah. and I can just tweak the articulation on like clarinet 3 and say, hey, oboe, shut yeah. up. I don't have to do that. Yeah, yeah. I can just click mute on the oboe and then move on to what I was intending to do.
2: Well, that's the dream. Like, guy like John Powell, let's say, or, uh, you know, James Newton Howard or something. Mm -hmm. Those guys have budgets where they can have the best of both worlds. In other words, there yeah. and Hans, you know. Oh, Hans
3: Zimmering! Five little <laughs> studio techs walk him in with his palanquin to sit yeah, down yeah. and sketch his late motif, and then he gives yeah. it to his assistants who run off to do the work. Oh yeah, good old Hans. <laughs> you
2: know, last night for whatever reason, there's a bunch of stuff going on lately, but it, it caused <laughs> me to have to read something. Uh, someone either sent me in an email or sent me a link, but. It, it, it was a thing about how many guys Hans actually has. It was a hundred, 267 God. people within, you know, not on any given moment, mind mm-hmm. you, but the options, personnel options he has is, you know, he's got like 30 something composers and, 40 of this and a bunch of music editors and engineers and so forth. But we should all be so lucky. These guys, and I I mostly think of a guy like John Powell, who's one of the best composers out there, but he has orchestra, he has a total, or Harry Gregson Williams, another guy that has total control over both worlds. That would be the best, but you have to have a real budget to be able to, you know, run in and out of village recorders or Sony, you know, big stage with a bunch of uh, string players or whatnot. Uh, and in my career, I've never I don't look upon myself in the same way I look upon the guys I just mentioned. I'm a, I'm a survivor. I've I've worked in this field for a half a century. I'm grateful for it, but I'm not a superstar, obviously. And these guys have budgets that, you know, I've had decent budgets over the years on and off, but I'm a little more like a worker bee, you know, a little more <laughs> like a, you know, I got to keep doing it to earn a living. I can't, rest on my laurels or some huge, uh, you know, uh, financial success or something. These guys really make a lot of money. A lot of them do. Not all of them. They're given budgets that are pretty generous and they can pretty much do stuff they want. I've always been having to work with what I got. I don't know if you talk about Elm Street, but Elm Street's an example where when I did it, it was the first. And and so it it wasn't a bunch of budget there. And The budget was really so meager that I actually had to record it here in the room and go to West LA Music, which is a retail store, buy a TAC 8 track and some Boss pedals and stuff. You know, I had to pretty much record it alone, which in 1983 or whatever it was, wasn't the way things were done. Right. And now that's pretty common, but I'm just saying it was because of budget. You know, if I wanted to make any money, I, I couldn't, well, even if I hired an orchestra, there were, even wasn't enough for that. So, you know, I kind of was forced to, to. what is that? Invention is the mother. Uh, necessity, necessity is the mother of, of, invention. of invention. I was going to say it backward. <laughs> um, anyway. So I'm more in your boat, is what I'm saying, Daniel.
3: What inspired the late motif for Nightmare on Elm Street? I mean, that is—it's one of the most iconic soundtracks in modern horror, and especially for my generation. You know, '80s, and '90s kids growing up, yeah. as we all know that. So, you know, yeah. so I mean, what inspired that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Damn, dude's got a keyboard off screen, y'all. That's awesome. That is the sign of a true composer.
2: This is the way I work. Like, I've got two screens here. You guys are up here. Keyboard is here. My sequencing software is I'm looking at here and so forth. So the keyboard is on right now because it's running through uh, Digital Performer, which is my software. Uh, And we can talk software and hardware if you want, but at some point. But in any case, that theme... When I started doing Elm Street with, I didn't know Wes at the time. You know, I was just meeting him when I started working on that. I played this for him about, I don't know, I was a third of the way through composing the score. And I said, Wes, you know, I'd kind of like to write a, a theme that incorporates the, the feeling of the whole movie, not not just a Freddy theme or this or that, you know. And uh, I didn't think he would go for that because it's kind of old-fashioned movie scoring kind of thing to do. It wasn't like just horror effects and zingers and stuff, but he was fine with that. And and so I went down that road, and I'm really grateful because when I've seen the movie in recent years, it works for me. The music is unifying and, yeah. you know, it does what it needs to do, and I'm I'm happy with it. So. I'm glad I kind of did it's it's a 10 note theme and then there's this uh, thing that goes you know Freddy 1 2 thing that was already the 1 2 Freddy that's already in the movie I didn't make up the 1 2 Freddy's coming for you 3 4 better lock the door I mean that that's the girls are singing that inside the movie when I came on the gig so to, but that whole movie was a product of budget problems and having to scrape together some kind of a, a score without the resources to have an orchestra. Now, after me came Chris Young. He did the second Elm Street. And they gave, now the, you know, the, the franchise was already taking hold. It was a big success. Oh, and of yeah. Now he, he gets all the money. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> he, he got the orchestra, but the mother of invention actually for me was I had to do stuff that I think endured. Because I had to write themes and do things, you know, uh, that worked. And if I'd had an orchestra, I might have been able to hide behind it a little more, you know, do orchestral stuff and have a little fun. And, you know, but this way I had to, it was a little more bare bones, a little raw kind of it thing.
3: Makes for the better soundtrack. I mean, to me, one of the best soundtracks ever is James Horner's score for Alien. The dude made a sonic dark ambient album out of an organic orchestra and i don't know if that was his intention if he was really that badass i'll say he was oh he's just that he made that score and the majority of the score is just a bunch of just subtle dynamics and a whole lot of noodling on the strings and stuff but then all of a sudden he'll come out with the bellicose rhythm whenever it's the you know this the sequence trying to escape a a futile escape and just that whole score is just brilliant the way he did it he's that.
2: masterful that, that is it, masterful was, but sometimes
3: dude. the minimalism is you know what i was saying yeah. is sometimes it's brilliant like the I'm on yeah. elm street score
2: it can be it can be helpful you know it, it, it each time we get a movie by the way i once went over to uh, james's house a long time ago i wasn't close friends with him i don't know why i was there i just remember this one thing he had like a you know a small grand piano with a writing thing on it and he was writing in ink I just remember seeing I mean I don't know if you know but you know I gotta have an eraser and a Best pencil. Confidence. yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it really is I mean I, I was like are you kidding me you know and he's just kind of writing fast in ink like he's never going to go back and change notes you know Anyway, just a little uh, little aside about him, but uh, James Horner was a really immensely talented guy. I mean, one of the real greats, I think.
1: Please help me on this, Daniel, because off the top of my head, I can't remember the book, but we spoke with uh, Richard Band recently. And he said that uh, during the early days of film scoring that you guys had a certain book that you yeah, had to follow.
2: that... Tempo I'll get it for you. It, oh, it, you it, haven't. In that it's a, there, There's a book in that little, you know, area there, uh, which uh, I'm wearing a lavalier mic, so I'm I'm not sure if it'll stretch over there, but I can always go get it and show you. It was called the nudson K N, you know, nudson book. The guy named Nudson, He was a music editor, and the whole book is a, are computer printouts of numbers. It's all there is, is, you know, and it's a XY axis kind of graph. And each page is a, d- a different tempo, which is calibrated in the uh, amount of film that goes through a camera in a given, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So uh, in the olden days, the reason nobody wanted ever to be a film composer until computers came in is we had to do all this math that he's referring to. And we go to this book, we say, okay, my tempo is so many beats per minute, and that would translate into so many feet of film going through the camera per second and so forth. And then once we have the book open to the page, that's the tempo, we can find the number of the beat of any place in that music and exactly where it is in the music. It, It would tell you what bar you're on. So I used to have tissue paper and make all these transparent graphs that I could overlay on the numbers and, you know, decide where the bar lines should go and all this stuff. It was a giant pain, is the truth. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it's one of the things that made film scoring such a weird, uh, idiosyncratic, oddball profession. Whereas now the computer does everything It play. I, I could go on and on about the difference between then and now, but another huge difference was, You can't watch the movie in the old days while you're writing. I mean, think about it. All the great film composers, uh, you know, of the Korngold and Alfred Newman, all those kind of guys that originated film scoring in the 1930s and 40s, they they would go to the studio, watch the movie, and then they go home and write the music or they go into a cubicle somewhere, uh, not a screening room. And so you had to memorize, composers had to memorize the, the movie and the tempo and the feeling of it, and then go elsewhere and write the music. And now the younger generations, I say that plural because I think this started in the 1980s, so that's you know, already a couple generations that take for granted that if you have a digital representation of the movie, you can actually run it in, in sync with your sequencing program. Yeah. So you're actually writing to picture. I mean, that alone, composers couldn't have imagined that. You know, which is again another reason why Daniel, you're you're a smart guy. If you were born when I was born, you probably would have said, no, no, I, I think there's a better way to earn a living than this. This is not for me. You know, because it just it just wasn't I, I don't know, it wasn't an easy or I don't want to say easy, but it wasn't an attractive profession. Mm. You know, it was it was a lot of annoyance and a lot of busy work and mathematical screwings around and trying to remember what scenes were so i think you were born at the right time is what i'm saying this is a much better world for <laughs> composers
3: that i can just hear my how the hell do you write a five eight beat yeah <laughs> what did you have for uh elm street did you have did you see the full movie or did uh-huh. wes okay. just tell you like well there's a dude with knives on his fingers and he's <laughs> trying to kill the chick and then there's another kid and he's gonna try to kill that kid i mean how did you have that when yeah. you wrote elm street
2: you know, that's an excellent question. When I wrote Elm Street, just before, there was a thing called a three-quarter inch uh, video cassette player. It was a professional-grade broadcast. I think the news stations would use it, you know, when they'd re- replay a, a news thing. It, it was like a, a big video, uh, videotape, well, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I bought one. A lot of composers did. They were kind of expensive. I don't know, a few grand or something at that time. Big investment. But, you know, that was a way you could actually bring the, the movie into your house. And, and even if you couldn't have a home studio, you could kind of live with it and not have to have uh, 18 or 20 cans of film, which is the alternative and rent a moviola. So the way it was, that was up to Elm Street. When I was hired on Elm Street. Not much before that, a new product was invented called the Home Video VCR. It was a new thing. And so Hollywood was starting to say, okay, maybe we can use this, you know, to, to give our sound department and our music department uh, something to watch and so forth. So Wes had, there's something called a work print. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it, I don't know if they still do this, but in those days, they'd, they'd shoot the film And they'd make a cheap black and white version of it that they could then give to the sound department and the composer and whoever else needed it for post-production. So they gave me an unfinished work print of Elm Street, which the end of the movie was just black. You know, there was no nothing there because they hadn't shot this ending stuff that they were arguing about and shooting different versions of which maybe you're aware of so my version i didn't have representation of certain scenes that they were doing visual effects for they would just put in some what they call leader black film that you know it's blank uh, to the proper length so i could write to it so that was my, that's what I had, Daniel. I had a, a uh, you know, essentially a work print on VCR. And it seems to me there was a way we were able to sync VCRs with eight tracks. It was called a uh, sempty code sound sync channel. I can't even now imagine how it worked, but somehow generated a tone that would lock some kind of clock to something that allowed you to, you know, run it to run the picture to uh, your, your recording device. But anyway, thank God that's all in the past now. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's how I did Elm Street. I, I had a, a, a black and white v, VHR.
1: Before we get too far away from it, Charles, I got to ask you to elaborate on something. Mm-hmm. Uh, your bio says that you played jazz. And the cellars of Paris and that you dance to folk music with gypsies yeah. in the Balkans. Yeah. So you got yeah. you to skip over that.
2: Oh, yeah. You know, it's something I once said somewhere to get, you know, sometimes <laughs> on the internet, <laughs> certain things just get, you know, they they grab it and you can never get away from it. Yeah. Okay. Uh When I first went to Paris for whatever reason, I was a, a student and I did not study with Nadia Boulanger or any of those famous people. I just went over there because I kind of, I, Learned French in school, and I, you know, had this. I just loved Paris. It just seemed so cool, you know. Especially at that time, when I went to Paris for some reason, I felt like I knew the place. I'd looked at maps and stuff before I went, but when I was there, I just, you know, I just knew my way around. It felt familiar. Maybe another life or something. So, um, the first night I was there, I went on Rue de la Huchette in uh, the the left bank. I went down into a cellar and there was some black guys, American guys playing jazz like a trio, you know, just very casual, no big deal, small place. And for some reason, and, you know, I said, can I sit in? So I, I, I sat in. So, you know, I, I did play jazz in the cellars of Paris uh, and that's what that referred to. And I'm a big fan of Greek music and Balkan music i love the way gypsies play guitar and and fiddle and you know the symbolism and stuff and so i dance i i've always danced and i've always danced with you know even now on greek easter or some holiday I'll, I'll go where the Greeks you know I'll be invited to a Greek Easter celebration with some Greek people and yeah I just love dancing in any form I particularly love uh, that kind of music it's just I, I don't know there's a movie called Zorba the Greek when I was a kid uh, and you know it, it, Tony Quinn was doing this wonderful stuff I said oh man that looks good I like that I, I, you know I'd like to do that and just, you know, there's a lot of folk dancing in Los Angeles available at the time. So I just, you know, always incorporated that when it was available.
1: Before you got into film scoring, were you playing a lot live in bands or anything? Were you... Yeah,
2: I uh, I was uh, playing in the 60s. I remember playing in a band called LUV. <laughs> and we opened for Country Joe and the Fish at some crappy little you know, club somewhere. <laughs> and I just remember saying, this is not for me. It's... It, it, it's too loud, you know it was just too too <laughs> you know i it didn't uh yeah i'm I'm a little smoother kind of temperament i i it was the, the lifestyle was just too i don't know, you know, and then punk came and uh, yeah i my rhythm, Daniel, your rhythm is faster than mine you you could probably do you play drums or anything, yeah. Yeah, okay, so you can probably you probably played punk, I'm sure, right? Uh,
3: a little more extreme than that. Currently, okay. I do symphonic death metal and black metal kind of like really fast. Yeah, I, but yeah, I mean, I get what you're yeah. saying though the when yeah. the punk comes out and the paradigm shifts and so fast. So, I understand.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but each of us has different tempos. You know, I mean, different speeds. We run at different different tempo speeds and my tempo wasn't compatible with the 60s rock or the or the the things that followed you know i i uh, i love a lot of it uh but it, you know just to do it every night and do it late you know it, it I, I just wasn't temperamentally suited to hang in that level i did it for a while but it didn't it didn't fit it didn't fit my uh my rhythm
3: I love how you say that. You're rid of like, nobody's ever mentioned that. I try to do a lot of dark ambient, slower, moodier Uh stuff, but it's just funny that I will, and I'll dabble, and I could, you know, whip out a 10 minute song, or, you know, like a 60 minute long, nice little lilting soliloquy that'll just Uh go through. But, it won't take no time. And all of a sudden I'm starting to throw in some drums. I'm going to throw in some tribal yeah. drums and I'm going to have a deep low synthesizer come in. And before you know it, I've got a 125, 130 BPM track going right yeah. after it. I just can't seem to help it. So at least I hear from you, <laughs> sure. that you know, you yeah. have your own rhythm that you follow. And
2: let I me say this to you, Daniel, that's a, a, an asset. That That's a value. In other words, if each of us knows what, what our maximum thing to contribute is like, You'll do that better than I'll do it. You'll do it better than John Williams will do it. You'll do it better than John Powell will do it. You know what I'm saying? Everybody has like a thing that they, they're suited to. I can write all kinds of music, but there's certain things that if they hire me, I'm gonna probably do a, a little better than someone else because it, it's a little closer to my what it is I'm good at, you know. Like what? But, Sorry to interrupt,
3: um, but like what? Yeah. What what do you enjoy?
2: Screwing. I en- yeah I enjoy big. Uh, I don't I'm rarely get a chance to do this. As, as an example, I'd love to do I'd love to do big cosmic thing, but I'd love to do a small Greek thing. I never had an opportunity to do you know some of the music that that is close to my heart. I probably if somebody had a let's say a, you know a really a. Uh, one of the sub-genres of metal or, or of punk or something, they'd be better off going to someone who really has an insight and an affinity for that, like yourself or someone, you know. And if they come to me for something that, I don't know, just, you know, resonates with something that I've been close to over the years. But having said that, again, guys, and I'll say our profession, we can't just do what we do best, you know, to survive. We really, like you say, you have to write, you know, really mellow stuff and I have to write really frenetic stuff and that you know that's part of the the, the craft that stuff <laughs> that really resonates you know
3: one of the hardest ones I ever did I was doing the uh I was doing some underscores for um full moon charles band had a movie that was called his mm. guy is forgive me but this is the name of the movie badass motherfuckers and yeah. it was uh Fred Williamson was in it but I was he
2: I, I did a movie with Fred Williamson too by the way it's a great title for him yeah.
3: <laughs> we got uh, I, I had to do some underscoring well I had never and this was what was told to me: make it. It I need a black exploitation tune. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, cool. And I was like, what the hell is a? Bla- I have never <laughs> even done that. Is that like seventies <laughs> porn music or something? <laughs> sure yeah. enough, it kind of was. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, that was like the most. I in this same film, I also had to do a reggae tune. Yeah. So Charles tasks me with black exploitation, a reggae tune, and then a Saturday morning cartoon jingle no i could do yeah. that that yeah, would be yeah. it's just like hell ninja turtles x-men let's do this but <laughs> like when i'm trying to think of the black exploitation i was like how the hell do i guess my wah pedal and yeah sometimes yeah. find some people to go shot like that in the background. like <laughs> Sound like they yeah. mean it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah I get yeah. what you mean having to go out of your yeah. wheelhouse, though.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's part of the gig. You you got that. Um, the movie, the Fred Williamson movie that, that I did was called That Man Bolt, B-O-L-T. It was a, a universal movie back in 72 or 73. And he is a badass motherfucker. He's kicking. <laughs> it's kickboxing kind of stuff. And he's out there busting everybody up. And yeah, it, it uh, you know, we, it's That's cool. maybe, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't maybe what I would, if I were choosing my gigs, but Hey, you know, yeah, beggars yeah.
3: and choosers and that whole thing. Oh, I get that it. Whole if thing. Yeah, if yeah. you could choose yeah. what movie would you want to score? Whether it's made now or whether it's not been made that just, you could score yeah. it. You could go back and score any film or anything coming up. What would That's you a want good to question. score?
2: You know, more important to me than the movie is the movie makers. You know, I mean, if I could choose to work with certain movie makers, ooh, who? You know, you know what I mean. Well, again, I'll take a step back and say anybody who's trusting, kind. (laughs) Encourage- in other words, I worked for so many bastards or people that are possible. You know what I mean? Yeah. Work with really creative, really wonderful, smart. I worked, I did about a dozen films with a guy named Joe Sargent. He's passed away. But, you know, anything that Joe would do because of his taste and his his sensitivity and his somehow bringing out the best in what I have to offer. And I, I've done a wide variety of movies, but he's the common denominator. So I'd almost say I'd rather have a director like Joe or someone who gets what they can get from me uh, rather than somebody who's famous and the movie's great and, you know, all of that kind of thing and and have people that that aren't creative or you know, encouraging of what I have to offer, and the same would be for you, Daniel. If you know you want to work with a director who says, you know, Daniel's the guy for this. You know, and yeah. they believe in you. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that then you can do what you do, be who you are, and trust that they're not going to make you look bad. Because I've I've written music for movies where I've I've been truly embarrassed. Those I won't mention, but uh, because. I've given what I have to give, but they've used it wrongly. They put pieces in different places. They played it at the wrong level. They've you know, just screwed it up in some way that makes me look like the bad guy, like the guy who made bad judgments, you know?
3: So speaking of bad judgments, and this is not on you. This is this is like, I live for this. I have a <laughs> podcast that I call The Bottom Rack, and yeah. I love movies. Just direct a video. Of, I mean, people would call it, I've started a tradition called Shitty Movie Sunday. Back when I was in my late teens, because I grew up watching Full Moon and stuff. I mean, this is I love the I love the lower budget. I love the indie spirit. Fast forward now, Asylum is like other than Full Moon, the Asylum is like my favorite film company. So anyway, I see on your little filmography here, there's a movie that I have missed: Sharktopus versus Whale Wolf. Ah, dude.
2: Okay, Daniel. I
3: I hope this isn't one of the ones where like they screwed up your score. Like I seriously like I want you to say. Well, I was trying out a, I got a Moog and maybe I had a Yamaha PSR and I decided to run it through my amplifier and just get kind of crazy. What was that like?
2: Okay. I've never been asked about Sharktopus versus Werewolf before. You're welcome, audience.
3: You're welcome. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt.
2: Yeah. Okay. Here's the story with that. It was, the producer is very, very, very famous. Very, it was done for the Wi-Fi channel. I, mm-hmm. Roger Corman produced the movie He mm-hmm. yeah, and his wife and I have enormous respect for him. He started yeah. off guys like Scorsese and all this. So th- this is a Roger Corman movie that this, yeah. it, it was made for the wife uh, sci-fi channel. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of half animated. you know, there's the, the creatures are animated and the people are real kind of thing. It, it, it looked like it would just be a, a, a kick in the pants. It looked like it would be a fun thing to do
3: yeah very
2: very low budget very very short schedule and all of that kind of thing and i did something on that movie i have never done in my entire career is i took on a partner and it's the only time maybe i'll do it again sometime i don't know but a guy named ryan Beveridge, lovely guy really solid composer uh, my agent represents him, and I said, you yeah, know, who would be a nice young guy to to work with on this? We'll split it down the middle, and, you know, uh, I'll write the themes and write the the architecture, kind of like guys do, you know, like maybe, yeah, I don't I know. know, maybe Hans works that way some, somewhat, that I'd basically give him the, okay, here's i'll write this attack cue but there's four more coming and just do variations of it you know this this is the theme this is the sound and so forth i you know first of all it was a lovely experience working with this guy and i realized it isn't so bad to collaborate especially with somebody you know you enjoy working with and respect so it changed my thinking a little bit this was about 8 years ago or something like that I, I forget so but it reminded me that working on short schedules and low budgets you know does have a lot of drawbacks yeah. and and it, it wasn't as fun as i had hoped and you know it was it was a high pressure high turnover yeah uh, kind of deal but that that's the story with that one
1: you mentioned this earlier uh so if you could go back and have a second crack at something you've done maybe to tweak something what would your choice
3: be
2: hmm yeah that that's also an interesting question yeah
3: he's a musician he, nothing's ever finished yeah you <laughs> know, I know that's the, kind of where I i'm know the
2: That's where I'm headed. Uh, Almost every film I've ever done, there's because of time and sometimes budget and, you know, whatever the reason, uh, there are things that I'd say if I had another crack at that. So I almost I don't think there's one where that was like real prevalent, you know, where I felt, oh, the whole score, I've got it, you know. But I think there's elements of that, uh, Justin, in every everything I do, and one of the reasons I was saying earlier that I love the control is that I can indulge that, you know, in the home studio environment. Yeah, that that's kind of a part and parcel of my uh, of my life's experiences, having to tweak and you know never quite getting it but moving it in the right direction you know right who would
3: you say like your favorite composer is like favorite band or what it was who's yeah. the one that inspired you to do more orchestrations and stuff if yeah. somebody asked me i mean i'm a kid from the 80s i'm going to tell them it was basil Polidorus oh, Basil. Was james horner you know just growing yeah. up watching conan and then yeah, He-Man, yeah. watching yeah. the he-man cartoon that's you just trace the trajectory of my childhood straight back to there so i mean like who was right. yours who was your okay well first of idol? all
2: daniel basil You know, we don't hear enough about Basil these days. I'm kind of sad with how much he's sort of not on the stage. He passed away about 10 years ago, or I forget exactly when, Uh, but he was a friend. Oh,
3: really? You knew him?
2: Oh, yes, very well. And we served on committees together at the academy. And I just, uh, I'd invite him to talk to my UCLA class. And he brought his daughters when they were young <laughs> into the classroom. Yeah, no, I, I I knew Basil well. He's Greek, by the way. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, just enormous respect for the guy and his and his work. But in any anyway, I was thinking recently about how many composers get you know, like Brad Fidel or God, there's so many of them that, that Jerry Fielding, you probably don't even know that name. I or, recognize the name. Yeah. I mean, there, there's so many composers who were very successful and a decade or two or three goes by and they're kind of like nobody remembers them. It's a little bit sad. But Basil's one of the guys I was thinking of in that regard. Let's see. So uh, I'm sorry. There was a question in there and then I I lost it. No, that's
3: fine. I was just, oh, I'm the same way when I talk about the, just thinking about the Conan score. It's just like that. Oh yeah. If you haven't heard it, somebody got together with the Prague Philharmonic and they re-score, they redid Basil Apollodorus' Conan score. But did it basically the way, is and it's kind of hubris in a bit, but it's the way that they say that if, Polidorus had had the orchestration equipment that we have now. This is what yeah. it would sound like. So anyway, it's on YouTube and I can't recommend it enough. The drum impacts alone, just using yeah. Tycho war drums.
2: Oh yeah. To, yeah, yeah. So
3: when you get the False Doom songs and stuff like, I forget, it's Doom Riders. Dude, yeah. that is a score. But no, my question was, who was your icon? Like who did you? Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, that's
2: what it was. Yeah, your
3: composing icon. Yeah,
2: I would say one of the big, big influences on me was Murakami. He he just had a a huge impact. And then when I, years later, got to interview him, and then I got to present him with an award, uh, you know, uh, I I had opportunities to interact with him. But for many, many years, he was this distant because he didn't travel much. And I, I was on the recording stage when he recorded. Was it Omen? What did he do? He did some big kind of not great horror movie thing. Not not the Jerry Goldsmith, but I think there was Omen 2 or... So, he did something in that series, maybe, or whatever. But I was able to actually be on the recording stage with him, which was uh, somehow I managed to get, you know, invited to that. And it was a big... Wow. Yeah, let's see. So he... When I first heard his music, I, I was never the same. I said, I think it might have been the reason I said maybe I'll go into this more seriously, the film scoring. So I, he's way up there for me. The inventiveness, the novel use of sound, the uh, his musicality. I mean, he's, man is just a tremendous composer. Uh, aside from being a film composer, you know, so he's a big one. For, and there's so many yeah uh, daniel uh, john williams uh whom i know very very well all my life uh and have spoken to him on many subjects he's a god to mm. me i mean you know uh, yes uh, a lot of the movies he's done have been a very conventional genre but it couldn't they couldn't be better written right and right. uh yeah I have enormous respect for john but morricone was more formative for me uh there are a bunch of uh, other composers who, over the years, yeah. Jerry Goldsmith is another one, tremendous influence, Elmer Bernstein, um, that, that era of composers back in yeah. the 60s and 70s. Wow. Uh, a lot of the guys today have a, continue to have a big influence on my, mm-hmm. uh, guys like uh, Alexandre Desplat writes these gorgeous, fluid European kind of things. Yeah, so many. I, I, I can't even list them all. <laughs>
3: Yeah. It, it is i mean as a composer essentially we become a patchwork quilt of all of yeah. our influences i was just curious as to yeah. you know because generally you have them when you ask it was yeah. like what started you off and you know you could just trace it back and so yeah for you it was morricone that's cool
2: yeah yeah i'd say morricone is just one of the uh, he, he really changed my life yeah yeah mm. so daniel your composer justin and angelique are not i'm that-
1: not no i don't i can't do anything music wise that's all Daniel.
2: Okay, just
0: checking <laughs> the lay of the land. Yeah,
2: and, and I, I, I here.
0: sing. I sing a little and do a lot of voice work, and, and okay. I write.
2: Yeah, good. You have a good resonant voice. Okay, and you write. I singing. told
0: her. See, that's. I tell. <laughs> this.
3: I'm always pitching her voice to people. It's like you need this voice.
2: Yeah, you know, voices are they're us you know, <laughs> you can't you can't buy a voice you can't you know change a voice. you know we are our voice and some people just have resonance in their voice and end up doing voiceover or, or singing or whatever uh, as you can hear my voice whenever i try to sing or do something it <laughs> doesn't turn out too well i just don't have the instrument but it's always great when someone just has it you know and can <laughs> use it
1: What's the most challenging project you worked on? What kept you up at night? Do you pull your hair out on something specifically?
2: Yeah. You know, Justin, the hair pulling out kinds of gigs are so often about the people and not so much about the gig being difficult because Mm. I, and I'll tell you this, I've never well, with recent exception, actually, it, it, I'm rather old, right? So only in the last year, I, and I, this could still change, but in the last year or so, I've done a couple of things that were actually giving me pleasure. But out of 130 movies that up to that point, I, I don't know that I've ever had an easy go of it. It's always I've hit a block where I think, oh, my God, why am I in this business? I don't know what to do with this. Uh, this has been done before. I'll never think, you know, just all kinds of negative crap comes up for me always on every movie. And then I kind of get through it and then I, I'm i kind of OK. But I've never just sailed in and sailed out. It's always been kind of a, oh, my God, why am I here? How did I? You know, why Thank did God.
1: I That's that reassuring. Happens, Let me say that's, that's me. reassuring. Every yeah. album,
3: every project, yeah. that's me.
2: Yeah, Literally you, you every kind of morning. hit an existential moment of what, you know, did I choose to be here? I mean, what is this? You know, and then, uh, yeah, but, you know, I think it forces us to go inner. You know, I mean, it's like at that point, you know, we're kind of face to face with ourselves and that's where the impasse happens. And you know, I write these articles uh, for the last 32 years, four times a year for the SCL uh, uh, Quarterly. Same thing with that. I, I, I come up with a subject. Right now, the subject is the the um, occupation of being a film composer. Last time it was what? How does attitude show itself in film music? You know, various weird things to think about. And every time I start writing one of these things, I hit a brick wall. It's like, oh. Okay, there's three sentences now. How am I going to get the other three pages to you know, finish this? Thing? And same thing. And I think this is worthless. I'm worthless. This enterprise is worthless. This life is worthless. You know. And then oh, there's a little light that comes through, and I go through that, and somehow I'm you know back on track. And it's never just. A piece of cake
1: that's reassuring <laughs> yeah i don't have nightmare uh on elm street under my belt and i still deal with fraud syndrome
2: <laughs> well yeah you know let me tell you this justin last year i was on a zoom with all of the academy award nominees uh john batiste and terence blanchard you know all the guys that were nominated for songs and and uh really major dudes And I was kind of hosting it because of my uh, being a governor at the academy. And in the course of this, it was a small Zoom, a little bigger than the four of us. But, you know, it was like eight people, eh, maybe 12 people or something. And every person referred to what you just said. They referred to the fact that they had some degree of what we were calling imposter yeah. syndrome. Yeah, yeah. I'm, like, I'm a fake, you know? And I, I said, I, I've always felt that way. Like a, like I'm impersonating a film composer <laughs> and people are letting me do it. Thank you people. You know what I mean? It, it was, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's not unusual, even among these guys who Academy award nominees that risen to the top of their, their field is still feeling that way, you know? So anyway, Feels,
1: thank you. Well, reassuring.
2: yeah, exactly. It feels good. Yeah. I
1: mean, yeah.
2: it sounds bad, but um, I wanted to ask about the whole Oscar process. Like, you know, sure. when you're listening to these, are you given the movie and then the soundtrack separately, or do you just A great watch question, movie? Angelique? Yeah. It's an important question. we, I say we at the Academy, I've been a governor for 25 years, but for 45 years, I've been on the music branch executive committee of the Oscars. So it's a familiar territory to me. So when I say we, I mean, those of us in the music branch and the other governors and so forth feel that the difference between the Oscar and say the Grammy or the Emmy or Tony or some other award is that Oscars are an achievement award for people who work in the movie business, not in the record business, you know, and the movie business when it comes to the musical part of it has to do with how the music helps tell the story, how the, mo- the music enhances the, the storytelling of the movie, not is it a great song or not? Is it a fabulously written score only? But it, is it both fabulous and does it do this magic? that makes a story better, makes a film better. And that's what the Oscar should be about. And there's always a tendency to wanna to take the music and market it separate from the movie. Like here's the song from such and such a movie, like Billie Eilish has um, No Time to Die this year, or, or uh, Beyonce has, that you know, these big recording artists, they can market the song away from the movie and. The voter may never see it or hear it in context, and that's not what we want for an Oscar. What, what we want for an Oscar is for the voter to experience it in the cinematic moment and say, "Wow, that really—you know—that really made the that work for me." You know, and so we encourage seeing the two together. For that reason, during COVID. We have a streaming service only for Academy voting members called the Academy Screening Room. It's a a streaming service. And the idea is that each member signs in with an ID and they can see every single song that's been submitted for the whole year, three minutes of it in the context of the movie, and then the movie itself is available. So if there's something that catches your attention, you want to see how it works in the big picture, So that's how the Academy is currently presenting its music voters with songs and scores is you can go on once they're nominated, which they currently are, then the member can go and find five score nominations and watch the whole movie and then vote what was the best score, meaning the one that worked best. And then you can additionally go to Spotify or someplace else and listen to the album you know as a as a separate thing but that's not so much encouraged maybe in the grammys that's fine you know Uh, but for oscars you always want to lead them back to the actual movie that's what i was hoping your answer would be (laughs) yeah Yeah. i i hope that wasn't too long-winded but no uh, no no, it was perfect (laughs) yes okay
3: no i want to finally to find out why then the oscars snub stan bush with The Touch from Transformers, the animated film in 1987, because
0: (laughs) (laughs) that song was originally intended as a Rocky song. However,
3: whenever Transformers rolls around, Stan Bush wrote that song for Transformers, the movie. If you watch that movie, Uh that is like, that's my favorite movie. But honestly, that soundtrack is like the perfect movie soundtrack. It almost feels like they drew the animation for that movie, listening Uh to these songs and it's just yeah. so iconic now of course it's just because i was a kid and just worship transformers anyway but still no nah, that was just a joke it was
2: transformers <laughs> uh was uh what was that one recently that uh, dario marianelli scored i think it was a uh, one of the l- later
3: man those scores are phenomenal steve yeah. jablonski's work yeah. it's just it, it is He's otherworldly terrific. he is one of my biggest influences just from the score from those movies
2: yeah you know i had steve as my guest uh just before covid in my <laughs> ucla yeah no i i asked him if you come down talk to a dozen you know students who are studying to be film composers each summer i'd like to invite a different composer to come down And he was very generous. He came down, talked to the students, visited with them. Uh, You know, he's a really sweet guy, really pleasant personality, really nice guy.
3: Yeah, the minor third progression that he just uses from Transformers, the movie, and even on into, like, just his later work is just, I rip the songs all the time. Like, in my podcast, if I'm wanting to do, like, epic music, I'll just throw in one of Jablonski's, one of his epic parts from it. It just, Yeah. yeah, that soundtrack is phenomenal.
2: Yeah, no, he's an excellent, excellent composer. And as I say, a really nice guy, very generous guy.
0: Well, I do like to ask all of our guests a question. You know, you you say you
2: enjoy movies and you have to watch them in, in a professional capacity. But what I like to know is what is your go-to movie snack? What's that <laughs> one thing that you just have to munch on to make your movie watching experience just the perfect yeah, experience? Yeah. I hear I hear you, Angelique, and, and I do have one. But um unfortunately you'll you'll say oh duh or something you know but <laughs> it's popcorn i, I just yeah. I, I love in fact i don't like super salty popcorn and all mm-hmm. the movie theaters in la were you know just dumping salt in there and it would, it would ruin the experience for me so i started bringing you know, go to the market and buy like a nice, you know, decent uh, popcorn that I like. And I'd bring it in in a brown paper bag, you know, like a guy with a beer or something. <laughs> and and I, I'd be eating that. And then lately I've had to kind of forego that. They, they frown on it. And, you know, so I've, I've actually been without my treasured snack, but I, I love good popcorn. That's
0: it's awesome. A classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: it is for a reason. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know who came up with that, but it was definitely a good idea. You know. <laughs> okay, well, Charles,
1: it's been a pleasure talking to you, man. Really, with you, guys. You, thank
2: you, you know, so much. Lovely people, I enjoyed it. I wish you all the best in whatever you're doing. Oh, thank you, man. You Thanks too. Thanks a lot, man. We'll okay. see you down
1: the road at some point.
0: Okay,
2: take
1: yep.
0: care,
2: guys. <laughs> have a good one. You right. too. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. Bye.
0: Oops, I guess I have to, there we go. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon Crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day, all with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine A treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.